It is Monday, April 22nd, 2019, and you are watching Marketing Live. I'm your host, Andy Fuller, Director of Strategic Content at the University of Notre Dame, and today's episode is a primer on podcasting, everything you need to know before and after you start your institution's podcast. Before we begin, a reminder, Marketing Live is part of the Higher Ed Live Network. All of our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education. You can be a part of our live broadcasts by sharing your knowledge. You can participate in today's discussion by tweeting us using hashtag Higher Ed Live. Today's broadcast is powered by Platform Q Education's Conduit Online Engagement Platform. To learn how to integrate continuous online engagement into your marketing and enrollment plans using Conduit, visit platformqedu.com. All of our episodes are recorded. They're free and easy to access in the video archives at higheredlive.com or take Higher Ed Live with you on the go by subscribing to, appropriately enough, the podcast. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a digital first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. And here's something kind of cool. M. Stoner has made all of their on-demand courses, so advanced marketing for higher education websites, digital marketing for higher education, and digital storytelling for higher education, all of those available in a three-course bundle. You can access M. Stoner's top-rated on-demand courses for less than the cost of one industry conference registration and travel. And that way, your entire team can access all 23 sessions. That's 19 hours of professional development for a full year with unlimited access. And your team will walk away with concrete strategies and tips to improve your web marketing and digital storytelling efforts immediately. We'll be tweeting out a link to that shortly. All right. Well, we've assembled a crack team to discuss podcasting in higher education this afternoon. I want to introduce them to you. We'll start with Jackie Vetrano. She is online marketing and social media manager at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's also the co-producer and co-host of UNC's award-winning Well Said podcast, as well as a producer and host of the Higher Ed Social podcast. Jackie, welcome. Hey, how's it going? All right. Also, we have Steve App from Campus Sonar and the creator and host of seasons one and two of the hashtag Higher Ed podcast. Good afternoon, Steve. Hello. And Mylon Plout, Radio Public's content strategist and the first ever podcast librarian. Hello, Mylon. Hello. All right, guys. Uh, so a lot of questions, uh, you know, the podcasting world is is exploding. And again, if you're watching us live, uh, don't hesitate to, uh, to ask questions using the hashtag Higher Ed Live. I'll try to get to those as, as much as possible, but I have a few questions of my own, of course. First, uh, Jackie, I wonder if we could we could start with you. So let's say let's say the bug has bitten. I uh, you know I'm, I'm listening to podcasts on my own, or uh, you know I have a boss and she or he is listening to podcasts and thinks we should we should jump in uh, to the podcasting game. What should we be asking ourselves before? before we start, you know, calling potential guests and, and figuring out, you know, content and stuff like that. Before any of that, what should we ask ourselves before we start a podcast? Well, I think there's one really important question, and that is why. Um, the same way we approach marketing campaigns or getting a Snapchat or an Instagram or whatever, um, the answer is why. Uh, you know, what is the actual goal 
of the podcast because if you don't have any direction, like it's not going to turn out the way you want it to. I mean, it'll probably shrivel up and die, which is also something you don't want <laughs> in a podcast. Yeah. Uh, Steve, anything to add to that? What, uh, what should you be asking yourself before you, uh, you jump into this thing? Yeah, I always think, and Jackie's right with goals. The way that I've always approached this is actually stepping back from the podcast itself and asking what goal the podcast is going to help you achieve from a, a more institutional level. So the goal should never be, you know, I want 10,000 listens in a year, or I want to raise awareness of our institution. I always think the goal should be tied to something that is bigger than that podcast. That might be um, increasing uh, the percentage of alumni who give back to the institution or identifying and building affinity among prospective donors or improving yield, right? By interviewing students who have committed to your institution, right? There's, there's that bigger step of what do we want to do as an institution? And then it's the question is then, well, how can the podcast help us accomplish that goal? And I think if you start at that level, you'll be able to think of it more holistically and much more strategically. Yeah. Bayan, Steve mentioned a few really important audience groups, and yep. it seems like that's a question we should be asking ourselves as well, right? Absolutely. So one of the biggest challenges with podcasts is that um, they're very solo experiences for listeners, but you have to know who you're talking to in order for that to be really effective. Um, within a college or university, there's all of, a lot of like obvious groups within it, but um, the various like students or alumni or faculty and each one of those audiences have slightly different needs. So knowing um, what you're going to be saying and to whom um, will tie back to those goals really effectively. Um, I've seen a number of podcasts in particular in the last year that come from universities, but aren't necessarily about the university, um, which mm -hmm. to me is more about like a branding and marketing positioning for the school um, coming out of communications offices or like a specific um, school within the university. Um, and those have very different goals. They're speaking to people at a, a different level of understanding sometimes, but like are basically drawing upon the resources internally of what the school has to offer. So they do serve again, slightly different goals. So knowing who you're talking or what the goal of your podcast is, where it sort of fits into the broader landscape of communication, and then who that ultimately is going to be for. Um, one of the things that we like to, I, so at Radio Public, we work a lot with PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and they are really focused on design thinking um, and utilizing that sort of process of iteration, figuring out exactly your audiences, um, and actually encourage people to do um, user interviews to have an exact image mm -hmm. of who this person is going to be. So if you're going to be speaking to students, speak directly with a couple of students to make sure that you're going to be addressing their needs. If you're speaking with alumni, same thing. If you're speaking to the broader world, figuring out who those um, individual people are, because if you can tell a story specifically to them, other people will resonate with it. Even if it, they're not that person, they will know exactly who it's for. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Steve, uh, okay, so we've asked ourselves some important questions. Now we're talking about like, what should really, uh, what should this podcast be? You know, and, and I guess my question is what, um, what should, uh, what makes for a good podcast? I mean, you know, there's a lot of different styles of, of podcasts out there. So how much of it is just, wow, this host is really amazing and engaging and how much of it is, uh, you know, production quality and, and things like that. Yeah, that's a good question. And if, as someone whose podcast did reasonably well at the expense of the host, I think you know the host is is just one person. You've got to have you have to have interesting stories. I think first and foremost, you know, the, the question I like to 
the question that I like to ask people to ask themselves is would I listen to this show if I didn't have a connection to the school, right? So, yeah. you know, I, this might be for prospective students. It might be for alums. If I wasn't that, if I didn't have an emotional attachment to my institution, would I still listen to this? Would it still be interesting yeah. to me? And if the answer is no, or even maybe, um, that's probably an indication that your show could use either an adapt adaptation and format um, or just an entirely new approach. And I think that also goes back to, to what Mayan was saying about audience and, and talking to that audience to get mm -hmm. a sense of what that answer really would be. Are you really meeting those goals? Jackie, what about you? What makes for a good podcast in your, in your mind? Yeah, I think that's, um, I have a very, I very much agree with what Steve was saying about like, would you even want to listen to this? Um, you know, and it goes back to what that goal is. And we kind of mentioned that, um, you have to come up with your why, but also your, your podcast should not stand independent of every other process that's happening on your campus, even if it's not a marketing podcast. Um, you know, if your business school wants to make an entire podcast series about how to do your taxes, one would totally listen to that. But two, like, even though it's a totally separate subject, it still comes back to your institution. So a really good podcast, like maybe the sound quality isn't hundred percent, but the content has to be. Um, and I think that's where people get very hung up on podcasting is they feel like they have to have the highest, the best mic and like a soundproof room and all this fancy equipment. And sure, the equipment is definitely going to help you and it's going to help your listener like get through your episode, but your listener is going to forgive you for maybe a Skype recording if it's a really interesting piece of content. Um, mm -hmm. And personally for me, I think we're all kind of moving through different types of podcasts that we like. Um, thinking about the format in a way of how do we best tell this story is really important, um, but also how much time do you have to actually put together. So if you're trying to become serial, if you're doing a murder mystery on your campus, call me. Um, <laughs> if you're trying to be serial and you're trying to get multiple interviews and phone calls and ambient noise and music to evoke feeling, that's great. Like that's going to be a very high quality podcast, but you also can tell a really good story with one interview. Um, so it's, it's try things out. That's what I always say. Um, you know, you can always just have a little test audience, tell them to listen to it. If they hate it and go back to the drawing board. Mm. Uh, my what are you seeing out there? You know, we've talked about some different types of, of, uh, of podcasts, you know, mm -hmm. as a librarian, what are you, what are you seeing out there? What's, what's, what trends are, are out there right now? Um, I'm actually going to touch very briefly on what Jackie was talking about. The, one sure. of the things that I, I find very appealing about listening to podcasts are podcasts that both know their own voice, but also speak to their own strengths. Um, there are a lot. So getting into the trend question, there are a lot of interview podcasts. There are a lot of reported journalism podcasts. There are a lot of deep dive series and all of those are formats. All of them can work in different situations, depending on how much money you have or how deep you want to get into how a story is going to work. Um, but the, what, strikes me and ends up um, sort of hooking me as a listener tends to be, does this podcast really know who it is? Um, and really knowing who it is is just knowing what the special, like what is a, a host's relationship to the story? Um, what is it, like going back to the, the needs of an individual user um, or an individual listener, I've been working in startup land a little too long if I go with user. My God, I'm so sorry. Um, just thinking about an uh, individual listener's needs and where and how the kind of story is going to work with them. Um, I've been uh, 
watching sort of the progression of a couple of different NPR stations that are figuring out podcasting right now. And the thing that ends up making the most sense and figuring out like what's the format going to be has a lot to do with um, the people who are making it, specifically the hosts, and how does their voice fit into this. Um, there's, uh, I think, a tendency to think that just like recording a conversation is more than enough, but um, unfortunately, that's not always going to be as interesting for a listener. So again, going back to what their needs are, and I end up looking more at um, the length and the style in which a story is being told mm -hmm. as being a really effective gauge for whether or not it's going to connect with the target listener. So um, if you're speaking directly to students, think about where in the day they're going to be listening. Are they going to be listening instead of doing their homework at the gym? Mm -hmm. um, just where in, in the landscape does that fit? And same thing goes regardless of what um, audience you choose, just thinking about where does a podcast fit into the day and addressing those specific needs. And it will dictate whether or not you're going to be doing a every single week, one hour, or is it going to be a short series, a seasonal thing, whatever. So um, I, this, I feel like this comes up pretty much anytime you talk about marketing and like institutional storytelling, but um, podcasts sort of compete in the same space as literally every other kind of media. So even though you might not be creating the, the next serial, it is in the same space as competing with serial in somebody's earbuds. Um, so the things that differentiate to me are either a very unique unique take on a story that's been told a couple of different ways or different times, or something that's just addressing an audience that hasn't been touched yet. Um, I get really excited about um, like schools or institutions that don't necessarily do a lot of storytelling, thinking that podcast is going to be this venue into it for them. It's great. It gives voice and dimension to what they're doing, and that's incredibly exciting to me. And it speaks to their strengths and utilizes like who they have access to. Um, mm -hmm. A college campus has access to brilliant faculty researchers. There is a way in which you can turn that into a narrative that is going to be helpful to any one of those possible audiences. Yeah, and we'll get back to that particular point in, in, a, in a minute. But I wonder if, if we could go back to something you said, Mayan, and that is, you know, people are listening to podcasts most of the time, I think, while they're doing something else. So while you're, you know, it's great to have, you know, a really interesting dialogue, but sometimes you got to draw the attention back and remind and kind of reiterate uh, during an interview or something like that. I'm curious, Jackie or, or Steve, what kind of tips or tricks do you have to kind of keep the thing moving a little bit during an episode, knowing that, you know, you're competing with not only other podcasts out there, but mm -hmm. driving to work and doing homework and that sort of thing. Jackie, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Jackie. Sorry, sorry. So, um, so what we've done at UNC, um, we switched our format from like a standard interview, one one host, one guest, um, to really more of a storytelling. So, like creeping closer to serial, but <laughs> production quality, I will say, is not right. all the way there. Um, but we actually use um, things like ambient noise or music. Um, in the middle of our podcast to kind of remind the listener that, hey, like over here. Um, and so I've read somewhere and I'm sh maybe I'm wrong, but I've heard that a user is only going to pay attention for about 15 seconds. Um, so if you can kind of get something interrupting. Now, I'm not saying like every 15 seconds play music. That is also not a good idea. Um, but if you can somehow kind of interrupt um, or at least if you have a guest who rambles for a really long time, maybe chop them up a little bit and stick your voice in there or stick music in there or put it underneath or something um, mm -hmm. just to give it a little, a little bit of different noise um, in your user's ear. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, I think Jackie's right. Um, and, and the narrative style is, at least from a storytelling perspective, right, that is the gold standard, I think, of interest and changing it up when you've got multiple yeah. interviewees that can chime in when you're, when you're interjecting as the host and helping people, you know, provide con or providing context to your audience, music, all that helps. And that's great. It does take a lot of production uh, investment. Some schools don't have that, especially right away. It doesn't have to be to that level. Even just breaking up a straight Q&A with uh, a quick 15-second musical interlude or a chime in, you know, it could be almost like an ad. It may not be an ad for a product, right? But maybe it's a on-campus event or something else that's coming up on your institution that is relevant to your audience. There are really simple ways to just weave in some of those interruptions to, to almost, again, pull that attention back to the show. It doesn't have to be constant and of differing types. It, it can be simple to start. Yeah, I, I think a lot of this actually, to me, has has like falls into somewhere in the production process, but also the pre-production process for making a podcast. Mm -hmm. um, a big part for me as a listener is I don't know that I need something to change every fifteen seconds, but I want to know that my time isn't being wasted. Um, that I want to make sure that like the person who's making this is like being really deliberate about making sure that every sound that I'm hearing is the sound they want me to hear. Um, mm -hmm. I love in-depth interview podcasts, and I know that. A take could be anywhere. It's probably an hour-long interview, but it ends up being a lot shorter and a lot more concentrated. Um, interviews, I feel like, tend to go still in like a relatively chronological order, whereas a more narrated um, storytelling piece is probably going to hop around um, in the podcast world. That's called hot tape. And when you're listening through your audio, you're just trying to find all of those like really zingy, amazing bits. Um, to me, from a marketing perspective, that ends up helping you go from the editing process to the marketing process about getting that episode out there into the world. And that hot tape is going to be the thing that both hooks your listeners and keeps them in. And like, you can feel it. You can usually even feel it when you're recording it. Um, so it's that like just attuning your ear to what is going to be most interesting to you as a creator, but also to the listener and also to the future listeners that you're hopefully going to be reaching through your marketing. So how do we find the, the interesting stuff that's going on on our on our campuses. You know, Mayan, you you touched on this. I mean, on on every college campus, you know, we have faculty who are you know working on problems that will impact humanity for generations to come. Right. I mean, there's really interesting stuff happening mm -hmm. on campus. How do we know what will be right for uh, the podcast format and get you some of those ambient mm -hmm. sounds, the things we've touched on that that make for really uh, interesting experiences uh, in the medium. Steve, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, it's going to be a very unique challenge for someone like I'll even say, right, Jackie, who's at a very large institution versus maybe someone who's at a smaller liberal arts institution. But I do think from a planning perspective, the more you can create open lines of communication, the better you're going to be. I know a lot of teams that will try to do, you know, weekly stand-ups where they'll have communicators come in or monthly stand-ups all try to get in the same room, share what's coming up on campus, share lessons learned, right? Create this kind of lunch and learn um, concept. I think those are great. I think those are really hard to maintain. And I don't think it has to be that complicated, even some kind of a, a Slack channel or something of that nature where people can kind of stay up to date on each other's departments, schools, colleges, share those stories. Um, that can be really helpful. I think the bigger challenge is doing that, uh, creating that communication ahead of time that allows you to plan for creating the podcast rather than discovering that 
something has happened, I can go back and record a podcast topic about that. It won't make the podcast worse necessarily. But I think, again, in the grand scheme of things, we'd like the podcast to feel like it's a part of a larger storytelling um, and, you know, landscape about a particular topic. And you do lose that when you retroactively discover a topic. So I, I actually think that's the larger challenge for a podcaster rather than actually finding the story. It's finding it at a timely manner where you can actually create something yeah. that works within mm -hmm. other types of media. Yeah. Jackie, what would you add? Yeah, I was going to say, as someone who has podcasted on both a small liberal arts campus mm -hmm. and a large state <laughs> institution, um, Steve is very right. But what I will say is, if you in your planning process, no matter how big your campus is, think that your content is going to run out, it's probably not great to do a podcast. Or you set, you know, what your strategy is. Um, you know, I've, I've been told many times that like the average podcast only creates like three episodes or something crazy. Maybe I'm, I don't know. My aunt's nodding. So I'm right. Yay. Um, somewhere in the three, it, people tend to fade between three and six. So, it's like, crazy, right? right? And so yeah. that's like, think about like, oh, we want to start doing video on our campus and you make six videos and it's like, you know, like it's podcasting is now, if you are going to jump in, it is now another arsenal in your media tool belt and you have to treat it that way. And so, I mean, it's a funny question to say, like, how do you find this stuff? Because really you should already be finding that stuff. But when you look for video content and when you look mm -hmm. for your narrative or written content or anything else that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to say it's, it's going to be easy because I, that's a lie. You're, it's still going to be challenging. There's still going to be some weeks where you're like, Oh my gosh, like we need, you know, we need to find something or find somebody because people fall through or whatever. But, um, you, sh you shouldn't be starting at zero. Um, because right. essentially you've come up with an idea because you have the content, um, not the other way around, maybe mm -hmm. depending on the situation. But I would say in higher ed, I think that's probably the landscape right now. Yeah. Right. And I the think there's thing... also like somewhat of a difference between like proactive and reactive content, that proactive mm -hmm. content, you're going out and figuring out what is going to be right. Whereas reactive content is like, oh, we should totally cover this thing that's <laughs> just presented itself to us. Yeah. And each has like a slightly different strategic approach. But I think with podcasting in particular, because of the just the sheer number of steps involved that are slightly different than the steps of making a video, similar, but mm -hmm. different enough that they involve a slightly different approach. Um, Compared to a story, you can very easily call up somebody for a quote after the fact. It's much harder to get that person on tape after the thing has happened. So it's to me, I see it more as are you um, utilizing a podcast in a manner that is like slightly larger, bigger, um, has some sort of end goal like we've been talking about, or is it just about like documenting something? Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a slightly different approach. Um, and I think both can work. I think the daily news podcast style that is being seen in podcast land right now that I'm sure listeners are familiar with because it's a way to keep people engaged on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. I would love to see that in higher ed. I don't know what its value is in higher education. Um, mm -hmm. I think it has, it just has a very different approach. Um, I see more podcasting in the sort of magazine style of we're looking at something and going a little bit deeper. It feels very true to higher ed's nature that it's not just like we're putting out lots and lots of content. It's a much more deliberate approach looking at the bigger picture, et cetera. Yeah. The one piece of advice I would give to someone who's concerned about being able to, to feed that content engine from a podcasting standpoint is as best you can give yourself some runway. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you've got a, a biweekly podcast, a monthly podcast, right, try to create, you know, two, three, even four episodes before you release that first one. If you can, if your format is, is more of an evergreen format, 
so that you're not having that moment that Jackie just described earlier where you're sitting there on a Monday and you're like, oh my gosh, what is my episode going to be? I'm supposed to release on Thursday. That runway yeah. can can always make it so that at a bare minimum, you know, you've got maybe two or three weeks to always be producing your next um, episode. Yeah. yeah. And I think, oh, oh, go ahead, Andy. No, I was just going to say, what you've described is, is exactly what, what we've done at, at Notre Dame. We're, we're producing these video stories all the time. And what we found is, honestly, podcasting has been a way to uh, repurpose and reuse or bring to life for the first time some of that content mm -hmm. that, that we gathered in that process that didn't quite make it into the story for one reason or another. But podcasting has given us another mm -hmm. outlet for that. That's all I was going to say. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, too, it kind of along those lines, too. When I got here at UNC, um, there's I have another colleague that kind of helps out. Um, and then, then one more that I kind of joke is my, like, in case of emergency, break glass um, kind of colleague. So there's nobody here that is full-time podcasting. I don't think there is one of those people that exists in higher ed yet. I'm very envious of that person, though. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you can somehow split the load um, with someone else that's on your content team or, or wherever you're situated on campus, it's incredibly helpful. Um, you know, you don't always, you don't have to be a pro editor um, to be able to put a podcast together. You can do it on GarageBand. That's how I started um, podcasting, you know, I, I have no audio skills. I just pick them up. They're not that hard. So, um, if you can find someone who's already finding content or they're already responsible for writing content, maybe they can help be part of the process so that, um, as Steve mentioned that, oh my gosh moment, you know, I'm, <laughs> I have to edit a podcast right after I finish this broadcast. That's going to be going up this <laughs> Wednesday. Um, but luckily my colleague has already finished the one for next week. So, um, we kind of <laughs> help each other out in that way. Jackie, you mentioned editing, and I think when people think about getting into podcasting, they're told right off the bat, you should plan on editing, 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 and it's going to take all your time. Uh, how much of that is reality? How much should people really expect? You know, say uh, uh, for every, I don't know what the, the stat is, but I, I think I've heard something for every minute of podcast episode, there's going to be this X amount of time yeah. editing. What's been your experiences with yeah. that? It greatly depends on the format um, mm -hmm. and who you have helping out. So I'll go from the least amount of effort in my life with higher ed social. I do no editing because my co-host does all of it. Um, <laughs> and then right. I, it's a very good deal. Um, <laughs> When I was at Skidmore College, uh, we had a very standard interview format where we had two microphones. I had one and the guest had another, and we talked for 30 or so minutes. My editing process was to put it into GarageBand. I would cut off the banter in the beginning, I would cut off the banter at the end, and then I would plop in two audio files at the beginning and the end with the music. So that was my editing for that. Um, sometimes I would go through if there were awkward silences or if I know that my guests like coughed or said like, wait, can I say that over? Could cut that out very quickly. Um, but now here at UNC, I have a little more time. So I've graduated to Adobe Audition um, and basically take a little bit more time to adjust audio levels to make sure they're all the same since we have more than one voice coming in and then adding um, music as well. So you could very easily spend 
five hours editing a 10 minute podcast, um, which really I spend about three to four editing UNC's podcast, which roughly comes out to about 10 to 15 minutes. Um, but that is because we work in the narrative format. So I have to go find that. I've not learned this new phrase from my on this hot tape. Um, <laughs> I have to go through a half hour, 45 minute long interview and find those moments and then um, cut the narrator's pieces out and do the leveling. And, you know, sometimes somebody starts their sentence in the middle and I have to make it sound like they're not. So that's a lot more complicated. Um, but that's all to say that if you don't think you have three to four hours of editing time to dedicate to your podcast, don't do this format. Like you need to pick a format that is going to work for you and you can always change it. Um, your audience will probably be fine with it unless they start to love your original format. Then there you go. But I would say to start small, you know, start with like a monthly schedule interviews, interview style, if this is something that you really want to get into. And then as you find your rhythm, you'll understand how much time you're actually going to need. Um, and then you can graduate to a different format. You can graduate to, um, more frequency, those types of things. So, and that's so important because as, as you mentioned, I don't know of anyone who's doing this as their sole responsibility at a university. It's always a tack on to other, you know, your 40 hour a week job. So carving out that time and knowing how much of that time to carve out is, is important. Steve, what about you? What about you in the editing space? Yeah. And I think when you were just mentioning that, Andy, I think you're right in that there is no one. And I know Jackie mentioned this too. No one just dedicated to this. I do think that is also where, the seasonal component of this can help a lot. Wow. You know, you don't have to do this every other week, all year long. You may decide to, to spend your summer going on, on doing your editing, your recording, your producing for a fall rollout, and you just do eight or 10 episodes that just go that fall. So there are ways to make the editing um, a little bit more manageable in a, in a day-to-day schedule, so to speak. Uh, but yeah, I think like Jackie said, it, it all depends on the format. The only thing I would add is that editing time doesn't have to just be for the benefit of the audio product. That is when you're looking for hot tapes, right? Those make great social graphics or pull yes. quotes if you're going to write mm -hmm. an article, right? So mm -hmm. don't just think of it as a wait, you know, not a waste of time, but I've got to spend three to four hours editing the show. And that's just a lost three to four hours. Um, try to think of the other ways that you might use the material that you find. And I think when you do that three to four hours, it, it's not going to shorten the duration, but it might make it a better investment for you. That's a great point. Maya, anything to, to add? On yeah, I was going to say, like, it, I think um, if we're looking at the, at any style, the thinking ahead piece is actually incredibly helpful mm -hmm. here. Um, it is I would say it is rare for someone who is a seasoned video maker to go out without having a shot list of all of the things that they want to get. And I would yeah. say the same thing goes if you're trying to get audio, um, all of the different things that you're trying to cover, making sure that you're getting those pieces at that time. And that, to me, also turns into your structure of that's your overall outline of what your episode is going to be. Um, Jackie, just hearing how you thought about things at Skidmore were like, you knew that this and this needed to be at the beginning and the end. Like Those are things that you know are going to be in every single episode. So mm -hmm. I'm definitely of the mind of like, creating outlines for yourself and figuring out structural stuff before you go into recording, editing, whatever. Um, the, I hate saying formalized process here, but giving yourself a little bit more of a formalized process gives you the opportunity to spend creative energy on the podcast itself and not on all of these other places where your energy or your 
focus could be drawn. So Steve, I love that you're thinking about like what the hot mm -hmm. tape is going to turn into for my marketing perspective. To me, that's a very natural extension, but it's not necessarily in people's head if they didn't think about it beforehand. Again, going back to like the goals and the audience, those are the things that you need to be like, hopefully those are the people that are in your mind and the sort of like underlying purpose that are in your mind as you're making this. But it also translates into all of the other pieces of how it gets out there as well. Yeah. So we have yeah. a question from Twitter, and don't forget, uh, you can ask us a question uh, using the hashtag Higher Ed Live. Uh, we have a question from Ryan. You know, Jackie, you mentioned using GarageBand when you started out. Now you're at Adobe Audition, and one of the, and I also use uh, Adobe Audition. Uh, one of the things that um, kind of struck me as amazing when when I started getting into this is just the number of tools, platforms, hosting services that are out there. So I'm curious, uh, what are a few that uh, that are pretty common in the space? And if you don't mind sharing, what, what do you guys use? Yeah, I I think I only know like three different buttons on Audition. Like I make it sound like <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, really <laughs> what are those three buttons? What are the okay. important buttons for you? So, okay, so let me think. So um, the, the things that I use the most are basically the, I don't even think it's like an actual button, but you can actually adjust the Audio, the level of a little a particular point um, in your uh, audio track. So mm -hmm. I uh, talk very loud, and so when I get excited, my words go up, and you see the big, huge spike, and I'm like, oh, there's me, see it, and there's my guest. Um, so you can take that huge spike and just take him all the way down. Um, the other thing that I use a lot is um, – the noise reduction feature, which if I envision it correctly, I think is under effects maybe. Um, and so what you'll want to do, and this is something I learned here at UNC from my colleague who is pro at this, um, right when you start recording, get like one to two seconds of silence. And when you're in audition, it's called a noise print. And so you just select that silence and you what's called capture the noise print. And then you do what's called noise reduction. It's all in there. And basically you're telling audition, like find this noise and um, remove it from my audio clips. Um, yeah. Basically like your HVAC, um, those types of things. Like it's not gonna, if you like highlight a cough, it's not gonna magically know what a cough is every single time, but um, any of that like white noise. So it helps to kind of clean it up a little bit. And then there's also um, declicker and declipper. Um, those are two really great buttons that, to be quite honest with you, don't know what they do specifically. I was told that they're great to use, and it makes my audio sound clean. So as you can tell, you don't have to be an audio pro to make a podcast. Um, so those are what I use uh, in audition. I would say going to, um, to Ryan's question, I think a helpful way to think about this is tiers, actually. So if you're on a super budget or right. No budget, I guess mm -hmm. is, is really the, the way to use this at the bottom, right? The free programs are like your garage band or mm -hmm. your audacity programs, right? Things that are either free to use or open sourced, but you should be aware they're going to be a little bit clunkier from a user experience mm -hmm. standpoint. So we need to keep that in mind. I think that mid tier is that kind of Adobe audition program, not free to use, but has some extra features like Jackie just mentioned. Um, probably you can fit it into your podcasting budget. If you're going to that pro level way up at the top, you've, you've definitely got buy-in to invest in this. Um, pro Tools is definitely the producer's choice in software. It mm -hmm. offers just the maximum level of features. There is a significant learning curve to actually 
using the software, but it's it's going to give you the the the, the most features and, and the most opportunity. Um, and I'd also I don't know if I know we talked about software options, but from a mic standpoint, it's the same thing, right? This doesn't have to be a huge uh, initial investment. I've got you can't see it on the screen, but I've got a tiny little Samsung um, microphone that costs forty dollars. You can get it a a Yeti for. Um, less than $200, I think even less than 150 now. Um, the location of where you're recording is going to be much more important than the software or the equipment that you're using. Uh, one of the most ingenious things I ever saw was someone had a clear plastic storage tub and they taped um, foam inside the tub. So like almost think of like a, a, an egg crate back in the day that you would get for your mattress well, they just basically used adhesive to put that inside the tub and then put their microphone in the tub and talked into that, which kills all echo, um, creates this really nice sounding um, audio. And, you know, for $68, you've got basically in-studio audio quality. So, uh, you know, sometimes you have to think outside the box or in the case of the tub, maybe inside the box. But, um, <laughs> but I think it's a good way to think of this whenever we think about software and equipment is just think about those tiers. Are you on a shoestring budget? Are you getting some buy-in? Do you have significant investment that can help you decide how to actually produce your audio? Yeah. Um, I'm going to add one more thing around tools and technology, and I'm going to just plug a project that I really love that's happening right now called Preserve This Podcast. Um, and they're basically walking podcasters through every step of the process to make sure that their files don't disappear, that they're saved for a, quite a long time. Um, and it's, I think it's a really excellent primer in thinking about um, digital storage and how you um, put things in multiple places at once. Um, so uh, they also have really, really good like explanations on how to start organizing your things, not only for you, but for other people on your team, for future people on your team, for future people after your team is no more. Um, so preserve this podcast. Their zine is like very creative and fun. And I, for as far as educational resources go, I found them to be incredibly helpful for learning how to think about the just management of a lot of the small things that you're going to start dealing with right now. Um, not all podcasters are coming from a place of, of digital asset knowledge. And I think this mm -hmm. being an entry point, um, knowing how to make sure that it's, it's not just a one and done or a unnamed file number 27 <laughs> um, as a way to start organizing yourself and keeping track of things. Yeah. Keeping track of things. So that, that might be a good entrance into this, this next topic and our last topic actually, um, so, okay, we've done the work. Now we, we got to put it out there for people to consume. How do we make sure that our podcast is being found? Uh, Myron, I, I wonder if we could start with <laughs> Judging by your reaction, you have to If you host a podcast to Apple, does it get played, Myron? Uh, not always. <laughs> so, um, Okay, I'm not going to soapbox too much here, but I have lots of thoughts about this. So tweet at me, people who want to talk about how you get found by other people. So um, two things. Um, in a very, very highly reductionist way, there are two kinds of people in relation to podcasts. There are people who are people who are not. For the people who already listen to podcasts, you just need to make sure that your podcast is available in various podcast directories. Apple is a good one. It covers a lot of bases. However, Android users can't use Apple products, so making sure that you're available on all platforms, regardless of whether or not they're Apple distributed. Right. Um, the place that I work builds an app, Apple and an Android app. It is a place that you should submit, submit your podcast to, please and thank you. Um, <laughs> the other, which is all of the people who don't listen to podcasts yet, um, that to me is like the golden, wonderful opportunity. It is the most people 
it is more than 50% of the United States and there's more around the world of people who don't listen yet. And even though the like alignment of who listens to podcasts generally lines up with people who had related to college campuses, educated, wealthier, whiter, et cetera, that's not going to always be the case about who is listening. So that means that your podcast discoverability has nothing, has, I wouldn't say nothing. It has little to do with podcast listening apps, which is again, how people who already know how to do this find stuff. Everyone else finds things from web searches. They Google things, mm -hmm. which means you need a web presence for your podcast, mm -hmm. whether that is in your um, college's website, if that's a standalone site on their own, we build those, we're happy to help you. Um, either one, that that is the entry point for more people. And that's the entry point also for people who also might listen to podcasts, but don't necessarily know that you have one. Um, so the web presence in particular to me is probably the most important thing after you've created your podcast is to make sure that the internet can also access it. Um, and part of that to me, for the people who've never listened before, is just guiding people from step one, step two to step three about you press play, you can hear things, you can hear it on the web, you can go over into an app and listen to it however you want to do it. It's cool. But the, at the very least, having a web presence feels very important at this rate. Um, in particular, for higher education, I think it's incredibly valuable because .edu's are valued very highly by Google, which means the internet's going to help you find help you find new listeners if you just make sure that you connect it to the rest of it. Okay, sorry, so Fox done. <laughs> no, I have to agree with you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a thing. Like I feel like we're not at the point yet where we like a random Joe Schmo users saying, Oh, I wonder if like Smith college has a podcast. Like they'll say that about Instagram, Snapchat, maybe not Snapchat, but Facebook, whatever website, right? Like that's so standard. We don't question whether or not a university has a website. We don't really question if they have a Facebook or Twitter, but no one in my opinion is saying like, Oh, they've got to have a podcast. Um, so you have not to yet. <laughs> We're getting there. We're still <laughs> getting there. I believe it. But I think at this point we need to push harder when it comes to promoting our podcast than we do any of our other channels, because mm -hmm. it's way less likely that people know it. So along with any of your digital marketing tactics, I think it's in my personal opinion, my experience, it's way more fun to do kind of like a gorilla or like some sort of tactile marketing for your podcast. Mm -hmm. Cause I don't know about you, but I am not scrolling Twitter and going to stop on a 25 minute podcast. I'm not going to listen to it right there. Maybe I'll say like, that seems really interesting. I'll go subscribe to it right now. Um, but really to get that person from, even if they're, whether they're a listener or not to podcasts, to get them from awareness to actually pressing play, like Mayan said, you need a web presence. You have to make it so simple for them, um, but you also have to basically like, you have to let people know that this thing exists. Yeah. Um, and also you have to keep reminding them, like don't just announce it when you launch the podcast and then say like, oh, we're gonna get millions of listeners. It's gonna be great. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You won't, I promise. So. so I think also just for higher education institutions in particular, I think a thing that we could be good at is teaching people how to listen to podcasts. Um, in particular, I think there is an opportunity to just help people listen to a podcast for the first time is its own in itself, a marketing campaign, but it's also a way to connect your, hopefully one of your target audiences on your campus with outside of that. Um, my favorite example of this right now is that, um, the, like, I'm kind of a baseball nerd sometimes. And I just think about the fact that most of the people who are interested in baseball are not necessarily listening to podcasts. If they are cool, if they're not, why not get somebody who's deeply involved in the 
baseball world to also talk about the fact that like, I didn't think podcasts were for me, but they totally could be. Um, Radio New Zealand did a totally ridiculous marketing campaign a couple of months ago where they put somebody in a dinosaur suit and then had the dinosaur learn how to listen to podcasts. And it was like, definitely a jab, but like, yes, even old people can listen to podcasts, but they made it funnier and more interesting. So this is the kind of thing where like, showcasing the range of what listenership looks like, but also guiding people through the process. I don't know. I see it as a creative opportunity to announce that your podcast exists um, and also teach people at the same time. The thing I don't like is it's a podcast. You should totally know how it works. It's like, no, let's guide people along this journey so that the first podcast they listen to is yours and they're always going to feel great about it as well. Steve, what would you add? Yeah, just I think it'd be on digital too. Um, you know, I'm listening to, I was telling mine before we started here, I'm listening to 31 higher education podcasts right now for, for Case. And there are two that have done a really great job of thinking beyond digital to tap into new audiences. One is uh, Southwestern University, which is actually partnering with their local NPR station. So yes. their podcast actually starts on air on radio and then they're taking it from that more traditional format and turning it into a podcast on the back end. That's a really cool way to amplify your audience right off the bat. Now they're doing it because their president is the podcast, you know, guest. Um, that adds another logistical challenge that that we don't have time for today. But it's a really neat way of thinking. Um, there's also Northwestern Medical School is doing an incredible job with their podcast. They have actually found a way to get uh, continuing medical education credits associated with their show. So when you listen to a podcast episode, you can get continuing medical education credits. That's a really neat way to entice people who may not know that you have a podcast to listen to your podcast. So for graduate schools, other professional schools, you know, these are just things that have nothing to do with your web presence, nothing to do with your social channels, but they're just other ways of thinking that can help you tap into a larger audience. Yeah. And this yeah. to me is part of tying into the quote superpower of your institution, um, utilizing like your existing marketing teams and just making sure that like podcast is a piece of podcasting is a piece of it um, really does help. So using your like your campus's internal skills feels like a really good opportunity here that not every podcaster has available to them. You have a whole institution backing you. Right. Um, they might not know what a podcast is, but that's okay. You're here to help them do that. <laughs> That, that NPR uh, angle that you mentioned, Steve, is something I think really potentially interesting for higher ed institutions. I think it's a natural fit there. It's something we've done at Notre Dame, partnering with our local NPR station as well. And so I, that could be a really interesting partnership uh, if, if approached the right way. The other thing I would add is is patience. Uh, I think it takes time to build an audience uh, yeah. these days in any platform, in podcasting, and maybe in some ways even more so. Yeah, I'll say for hashtag higher ed, it took us uh, 14 months to reach our first 5,000 listeners. It took us two months to get our next 5,000. Yeah. So yeah. you have to just stay patient, grow, build. You will reach, if it's a good show, you will reach that tipping point where it will become easier, but it's not going to happen immediately. Yeah. Yeah. And on the bright side of the people who listen to podcasts, they're incredibly committed to the podcasts that they listen mm -hmm. to. So even though it might take a long time to get your audience up to a really high number, again, the number doesn't matter as much, but the um, individual people that are being helped by the thing that you're making is huge. Um, the sustained listenership is part of it, the value of a podcast. And that is probably the most exciting thing to me. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, this is uh 
this will bring uh, this webcast of Marketing Live to, to a close, but I know I speak for myself, and I'm sure the others will be on Twitter afterwards uh, using the hashtag Higher Ed Live, or just hit us up uh, as well to continue the conversation there, um, and, and we look forward to that. Thanks, as always, to uh, M. Stoner. And uh, again, for this episode and more, go to higheredlive.com. Uh, but for now, thank you for joining us.